Heather McGee, who's on the board of Color of Change with me and has a new, very profound book out on race in America, says, because America is the world's boldest experiment in democracy, a nation of ancestral strangers with ties to every community on the globe, all met here with the audacious promise that we could become one people. And I'm a sucker for that. I think that really is the promise of this country. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I continue to be interested in political entrepreneurship among progressives, including how new progressive enterprises get funded. In this episode, I spoke with Sarah Williams, an activist and the CEO of Propel Capital. Previously, Sarah led her own consulting firm in the area of impact investing strategies and helped launch and lead the Pfizer Foundation at the time the largest corporate foundation in the U.S. Propel is a group which funds a variety of early stage impact ventures, and I'm particularly interested in their democracy promoting portfolio. Several founders I've had on the show have mentioned Sarah and Propel as a helpful partner, so I was excited to hear her story and how she invests in our progressive infrastructure. So with that as background, a quick word from our sponsor, then my interview with Sarah Williams and Propel Capo. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Sarah, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Nice to be here, Nathaniel. I'm Sarah Williams. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Propel. We invest in early stage ventures and visionary leaders challenging the status quo and reimagining an economy and democracy that work for all. And we use political investment and philanthropic capital to do that. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Washington, D.C., What did your folks do? What kind of family? They were both uh, academics and active in civil rights in various ways. Yeah, it was an amazing place to grow up. People were having all different kinds of conversations. Definitely a a city of politics. So that kind of gets into you a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I saw that you went to Wesleyan for college. Mm -hmm. How was that for you? It was great. I loved it. And actually moving from D.C., I was so excited to have two senators uh, representing me and a presidential vote that actually counted. So I started volunteering on presidential campaigns in small ways and have, you know, every four years since then. Um, but yeah, I loved, I loved uh, Wesleyan. What did you study there? Uh, I studied American studies, women's studies. I did a lot of, as many uh, students do at Wesleyan, I I did a lot of organizing there. I was active in the divestment movement there. 
which I think was one of the early ways that I started thinking about, you know, the connection between capital and social impact. From South Africa at the time? From South Africa, yeah. My father had done some of his doctoral research in South Africa. I'd spent time there in high school and had seen, you know, firsthand uh, segregated beaches and segregated water fountains. And so it, it left a very strong impression on me. Did you work after college or did you go straight on to more school? I moved to New Mexico, actually, and started a nonprofit there and then came to New York to do the Coro Fellowship. It's a public policy uh, graduate fellowship, and that's what brought me to New York City. I have a sister-in-law who did the Coro Fellowship at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I did I did it in New York. Uh, it it's, wasn't affiliated with a, an academic institution, but yeah, I was doing it here in New York. How did that move you forward? Well, I really wanted to do it in San Francisco. I thought New York was just way too big and, and noisy and dirty. But I, you apply nationally, and, and I was offered it in New York. It's an amazing fellowship because you, you, know, you do a series of internships over the course of the year, a labor union, a corporation, a political campaign. And so I just got to see so many different levers of change. Um, it was a really interesting way to be exposed to all that. I don't know how you got yourself in the position to launch the Pfizer Foundation. Tell me how you got there and how that all came together. Yeah, that was that was uh, lucky, I think. Um, I had been working doing HIV AIDS education for a reform chancellor of the New York City school system. I uh, ended up as his speechwriter and then through a variety of things that were happening in my life, uh, somebody who I knew who had been running a, a partnership at Pfizer um, between their research institutions and school districts was leaving the position and asked if I wanted to, to apply for it. And I was a little burned out from being the height of the AIDS epidemic. I've been thinking about it a lot because it's a moment not unlike this moment where the promise of uh, you know, medicine, really, uh, I was trying to get friends into clinical trials at the time. And so it was appealing. I mean, there are a lot of people in my life who think, you know, you worked at a pharmaceutical company, that seems uh, <laughs> like, like it, it's a little bit out of sync with some of the other priorities. But it was an amazing experience. I've been thinking about going to business school at the time, but didn't want to incur more loans. When I first showed up at Pfizer, I had a uh, a brand new red pantsuit that I bought. I was very excited. And the the HR person at the time said, well, women don't wear pants at Pfizer. And she was very, very old school and she didn't last long. It was a very different place than it is now. And so I was able to do some advocacy inside the organization, ended up staying there for 10 years. And they ended up having on-site daycare and job sharing and much more progressive policies for women. There were many of us organizing around that, but I feel pretty proud of, of that. And then they also had sold uh, some companies and really were looking for more creativity and strategy around their corporate social responsibility. So I really was able to to do a lot of very interesting things there. They created, we helped, uh, you know, launch what was at the time the largest corporate foundation in the country. We created health programs, strategic health programs, global health programs. Previously, it had been mostly United Way and uh, that kind of uh, corporate funding. It was really uh, a great experience to be there. And some of the people that I 
hired are now running what's happening with the vaccine. So it worked out for me and for hopefully for some of the projects that we helped launch as well. Well, it sounds like it. Can you be a little more specific about what you actually did? Like, I know it's a, a lot of money. I assume that you you learned a lot about the sort of stuff that you do now from being in a role like that, but, but flesh that out a little bit. Sure, sure. So what Pfizer would have called corporate social responsibility was this Pfizer education initiative, which was 16 sites around the country and bringing local science teachers into uh, summer fellowships that we designed with the research institutions. So that was the initial project that I managed. But then with this additional capital that was put in, we were really looking for ways to build relationships with ministries of health around the country. It turned out it was the very beginning of Zithromax, and there was a single dose of azithromycin that could prevent the world's leading cause of blindness, which is trachoma. And so we worked with um, the Ed McConnell-Clark Foundation at the time, which had a kind of orphan disease program and a blindness program, um, tropical disease uh, program, that looked at ways of treating these kinds of diseases. And so we developed with the WHO and ministries of health uh, in various countries around the world where trachoma still existed, a large trachoma initiative. Um, We also developed a project with community-based health centers around the country to provide reduced uh, medicines. And then I also launched a project in New York City called the Pfizer Community Ventures Fund, which was one of the initial things that was closer to what I'm doing now, which was earned revenue projects that uh, nonprofits were doing. One was to actually Darren Walker, who now runs the Ford Foundation at Abyssinian Baptist Development Corporation. They were looking to create a, uh, a food service business that might generate revenue for the development corporation. And we provided some initial funding for that, uh, as well as some housing finance and a few other projects in the early days. So there was just a, a kind of a spirit of uh, experimentation because the company Pfizer was really looking to expand expand their work beyond kind of doing business on one hand and then giving away money to United Way. They were looking to be more strategic. When you put 10 years into something, I imagine you come to opinions about how you ought to run something like that, how it could be done better, a foundation out of a big company. Like what was good and bad about it? Was the scale right? Were the choices right? Like if you were going to advise somebody running something like that at another big corporation, what would you tell them? I mean, the things that were most successful and had the right level of kind of stickiness and buy-in, you know, really were things that Uh, enabled the company to develop important relationships with a whole variety of stakeholders. So for the community health center programs, it was a program called Sharing the Care, that enabled them to, you know, meet state health uh, department officials and think through what were the, you know, delivery challenges of community health services around the country. So are you saying that like things that are sort of enlightened self-interest of the company work the best? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, the term we use then was like public-private partnerships around, you know, aligned interests. But obviously, there are lots of critiques of uh, of pharmaceutical companies. There are lots and lots of issues around access and 
the costs of medicines and some of the marketing practices and things like that. But I think we see right now in this in this COVID moment that there are real benefits to, you know, to companies that that have that R&D capability and also can work in line closely with patient advocates and policymakers uh, to come up with solutions that, you know, that work for everybody. I mean, it's interesting to think now I've just had a few exchanges with some of my former colleagues you know, there are hard decisions that have to be made in inside uh, those companies, obviously, uh, especially at a moment like this. But they do have the scale to embark on a gigantic project like this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that was just, you know, that was an amazing opportunity to be able to see that and participate and operate at scale with that range of projects was a real education. Why'd you leave and why'd you start your own consulting firm? I had two small kids. Uh, my husband was taking on a very uh, challenging assignment. And I just, even though Pfizer at that point had been so flexible and really, I think, became an, a, a very good workplace for working families, I just decided I wanted a little more flexibility. I spent time with the, the CEOs at Pfizer as we were setting up the foundation, the foundation board, and I enjoyed working with individuals and advising them on their, um, on their giving. And so I left and I kept Pfizer uh, as a client for, I think, two or three years, and then also added other clients. And it gave me some more of the flexibility that I wanted for my family. And what I ended up growing was my family philanthropy and advising business. And I, I really enjoyed working on that as well. Did you hire for that firm or was it just you or what, what was it? Um, I had, it depended on the project. I did some collaboration with others and then I had a small team, uh, two or three people at different times. Any noteworthy clients? I'd rather not say. I had a couple of other corporate clients. I did a project for KPMG and then, um, and then some family foundations that I was working with. I assume these are wealthy people that don't want their business talked about. How did you acquire them as clients? By then, it was uh, word of mouth. I mean, some of it was people who um, I developed relationships with when I'd been at Pfizer. But it was a small group that, uh, you know, stayed with me the, the whole time I was doing it. So what's the founding story for Propel Capital? My co-founder, Jeremy Mindich, and I were old friends, and he we'd been kind of tracking each other's careers. He'd been a human rights journalist and had gone to the Kennedy School, was really interested in economic development. So when I left Pfizer, one of the things I was looking at, again, was how could you use you know capital creatively? I'd seen all these different ways that had been able to, to work beyond just grants. And so we were both interested in that question. It was the very early days of what's now considered impact investing. It was really more microfinance, um, and neither of us were particularly interested in in that. I mean, there's there's a lot of great that can come of that, but um, it felt to us that it wasn't um, scalable or kind of lasting in the same way. Um, and so we uh, ended up looking into that and seeing where there were opportunities and providing support for Root Capital, which does um, small uh, shareholder finance, farmer cooperatives and agricultural businesses, 
we helped uh, in the early stages of Impact Assets, which is something that spun out of Calvert and enables people to do impact investing with their donor advised funds. Um, so a lot of the things that are underpinnings of what we now consider impact investing, we were there to try to help uh, get it launched at the beginning. What's the scale of Propel? How much money do you have to put it to work? It varies year by year, but we've deployed about $50 million in grants and investments uh, since the beginning. Where does that come from? Jeremy has a hedge fund that uh, he developed just prior to us starting Propel. Um, And so he provides the majority of the capital. And then we have some partnerships with others on a small scale. The main way that we operate is not by taking possession of capital, but of working very, very collaboratively with others on co-investing strategies, co-funding strategies. Since we're not the largest investor, often in many deals or the largest funder, we try to take a position that will provide the most leverage. So we often take the riskiest position, we take the first loss position, we come in early, and then we we work very hard to bring others uh, along behind us. Who are some of those good partners that you co-invest with or that are active? Particularly, I'm interested in the democracy. It's actually interesting. I was thinking about it this week because Omidyar and uh, the Skoll Foundation were co-investors in um, a project we did around uh, shareholder finance and then a a component of Omidyar, Luminate, um, now does co-invest with us and we with them around some of the democracy funding. And we're doing, I'm doing a series of diligence calls this week that we're going to do together um, just as a way to make it more efficient for the entrepreneurs. So in some cases, it's more institutional investors like that. We have a, a group of individual investors and political funders who I send things to, they send things to me. And again, if we, we're, we're very collaborative, so if there's ever an opportunity to do diligence uh, together or share diligence, then, then we do that. We work closely with New Media Ventures. I'm on the board of New Media Ventures, and they've, you know, they announced their cohort. And so I'm taking a look at, at the for-profit investments in their most recent cohort, and we work closely with them. Is it okay for people to come to you who are seeking funding? How do you decide who's going to get help from you? Yeah. Part of the reason we support New Media Ventures, and in the past we've supported uh, other entities like Village Capital, they have infrastructure in place and a framework to do larger scale vetting of companies. So I tend to send our, and Echoing Green, we've also uh, funded in the past. So I would say that those three are three of the, the organizations that we, that I would refer people to if they come to us directly to be vetted. We do do some direct investing ourselves that haven't gone through through those incubators. Those partnerships have been helpful to us over the years. On the democracy front, what's in your head about what's missing or what needs to be funded? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot uh, the last uh, couple of months because we're, we're obviously in a somewhat of a reset mode. You know, we very quickly moved in 2016. We were not a big democracy funder before that. We had, we actually created an LLC in July of 2016 as a way to move some of our 
or democracy funding and some investments. We do most of our investing through impact assets, but um, some of our investments, if we own too large a share of the company, we can't. And so we had we had just set up this LLC in 2016, thinking that it was mostly going to be just an administrative thing primarily. And then the 2016 election happened and we very quickly scaled up this Propel Democracy portfolio, um, you know, within just a couple of months. So we were able to do all that because we had the infrastructure of the, the LLC. And back then I was learning, I had this, you know, kind of general background and understanding of some of the democracy issues. We just uh, supported a lot of experimentation. But I'm thinking about that period of time because it was December, January of 2016, 2017. And obviously the space has just totally transformed since then. Some of the issues are still the same, obviously, but but there's been, you know, just such extraordinary creativity. I feel, you know, excited that many of the things that we bet on early you know, played an outsized role in this election. And I'm thinking, well, what's going to be the next version of that? So that's all just getting you to where I am in my head. But in response to your question, I still think we need just so much more work around narrative. You know, it's interesting because when I first started hearing about it, I thought like, well, that sounds like, yeah, sure, that sounds like a good idea. We should have social media, but I didn't fully understand it. Now, most of the world understands it because we saw the way President Trump used it just to influence people and, and motivate them to believe things and take actions that, you know, you never would have imagined. And so we ended up funding narrative work. But I think there's just so much more to be done around that. And I would I think of it as another tool for people to use when they're mobilizing people um, is is having a much more robust kind of network of content producers on on the left. I'm thinking a lot about what's the best way to do it and what are the most effective strategies for doing it. Well, just while you're on that, what have you invested on in that area already and how do you think they're doing? Yeah, I'm on the board of Color of Change and we fund Color of Change and I think they're absolutely, you know, best best in class at this. Uh, I think they're very, very strong. And they're thinking about it on the political side, but they're also thinking about it, you know, on the long game in terms of their Hollywood partnerships, their work around crime dramas, all the narrative work that they've done around policing. They did a report that came out in January of 2020 that, that got attention and um, it essentially came up with a, a rubric for evaluating crime shows. They perpetuate stereotypes about crime and policing that are very, very uh, dangerous for primarily Black people, Black and brown people. That report and that framework and rubric, when after George Floyd was murdered, just it just became an extraordinary tool. And now you have many creative people in Hollywood and other places using that as a way to negotiate their contracts and, and ensure that there are different ways um, that stories are told. So I think of that as a, a, a massive and incredibly important effort that's kind of working in parallel to some of the more direct uh, political pieces. One of the projects that we funded around narrative is a project called Win Black, which is run uh, actually by one of our 
investments in our democracy venture portfolio, AB Partners, and they brought together over 100 groups, grassroots groups, to address disinformation targeted primarily towards black and brown voters. Um, and so they, they stood it up in, I think, August or September, and it just generated tons of content around uh, vote by mail, around how you register to vote, uh, what are the voting in person guidelines. Um, and they did it in real time with daily or biweekly calls with this massive network of organizations that were playing a critical role in getting people out to vote. It was a way to funnel information up, like this is what we're seeing, this is what we hear our members telling us, and a way to get content and messaging you know, down to the grassroots. And they did it in a way where they would explain, like, this is the message, you know, because there's there was so much happening each day from Trump and others just generating all kinds of crazy uh, disinformation and and messages that they were able to, you know, very quickly say, today we're going to talk about how you should finish your registration, or today we're going to talk about how you can vote in person, or today we're going to, and they and they would explain why uh, why this message was important, why the the GIF or the the video or the meme that they were producing was the right solution, and they reached uh, millions and millions of people that way. And we just need you know twenty a thousand times what they you know what they were able to to generate. I was just going to add one other one um, is Move On, and they. MoveOn did this, I think, in the 2018 cycle, which is this Real Voter Voices that turned out to be highly effective. I don't know if you've heard about it, but people, it, yeah. Yeah, people recording, um, you know, short videos of themselves and then quickly testing many, many of them. Swayable, which is a, another company that we've invested in, you know, facilitates that kind of quick response testing so that you make sure, you know, some of the things that Real Voter Voices came out with, like, an, an older white man in support of, uh, you know, a young congressional candidate, uh, Latinx congressional candidate that turned out to be incredibly effective among young Latinx voters. Um, so there's just kind of unexpected things that happen. Um, but if you can test them, then you, you know, they're landing more effectively. Well, among those investments in the democracy portfolio, what do you think you're most proud of sort of the pick and what do you think didn't work? And are you thinking of the, only the for-profit ones or no, the, no, no, be, yeah. yeah. On the for-profit side, we invested in mobilize, you know, which just turned out to be a great company and a very efficient way of, of capturing and, and enabling volunteer actions. We were early investors with them and. Yeah. Bought by my former company. Oh yes, okay. So you know it. You know it well. Yes, of course. I didn't think about that, but yes. Another one is Way to Win. I don't know if you're familiar with that donor. Yeah. But we provided, I think, the first or one of the first, um, you know, operating grants to them, and were part of the kind of planning and workshopping the idea. And that team, uh, similarly to Sister District, I know you've had Lala Wu on the show just a crackerjack team of women who have moved over a hundred million dollars to state-based groups around the country, early supporters of Stacey Abrams, early supporters of 
Latasha Brown in Alabama, uh, the Black Voters Matter organizer, who's who's so amazing, and early supporters of uh, a bunch of the organizations in Arizona that were critical, Lucha and others. There's so many. And it's hard to think of one that didn't go well. Um, I have to say that group that we invested in early just really, really delivered. One of the things that I worry about, maybe you can tell me whether I'm on the wrong track here, but you know, there was such a flowering of investment and entrepreneurship around anti-Trump work starting in 2017. And now that we won back some power, well, I don't think the crisis is gone. And the far right is, you know, all over the place and, and growing, if anything. And I just wonder if we have that same resolve and same creativity and same investment now that we were feeling in 2017. What do you think? Gosh, I hope so. Yeah, I like that your podcast is called The Great Battlefield because it really, really is. It's not going to be resolved in my lifetime. No, and it's pretty much a toss-up between the parties right now. The battlefield's tilted towards them with the Senate and the Electoral College and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, massively so. If we hadn't had the kind of investment that we had in Georgia, we wouldn't we wouldn't be having this conversation right here. We wouldn't for so, sure have the Senate and yeah. we won the Electoral College very narrowly also, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not seeing any letting up in the the donor networks that I'm part of, but it is a disadvantage not to be able to be in person and, you know, kind of have some of those side conversations and read the room and and that kind of thing. So I think people are aware of how precarious a situation it is. I'm encouraged by people like Lala stepping into the leadership of Sister District, and I'm not seeing, you know, huge turnover in a bunch of the other organizations that we're supporting. And I'm thrilled that actually, I don't know if it's public, but one of our partners is going to work in the White House in an important role. I don't see anybody saying, well, that's done. And I'm going to go sit on a beach and read, though some of them really should and deserve to, so so they can, uh, you know, reboot. What about new organizations being formed? Is that still happening? I think so. Some people are, um, I just heard of one last night, somebody who's who's leaving an important media narrative organization to, to start another one that's going to help train more um, folks on the progressive uh, space in how to buy political advertising, just, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of, of getting that story out there. And I'm excited about the New Media Ventures cohort. I mean, two of them are ones that we have already invested in prior, but I'm, I have, you know, three calls this week with those to, to assess them and see if they're a fit. So their evaluation seems to play a fairly big role in whether other donors come on board. Yeah, 1,400 organizations they look at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't mean there aren't others coming to us I have a couple of conversations this week of people who have come through other uh, channels. So it's not as though they're the only one, but I think it's a very efficient way to spur innovation on the progressive side. They're set up to do that. What do you think of Higher Ground Labs? 
Yes, and I should mention Higher Ground Labs, too. That's another one, Shomik um, Judah, I think is great. And uh, and we we do a lot of notes comparing. We were both co-investors in Mobilize. They're very particularly focused on tech. And um, even though we, we invested in Mobilize, and I think... Um, I mean, I think tech is absolutely essential. At Propel, we don't have deep expertise in it. And so, and there are so many investors. I mean, not as many as there should be, but there are a lot of very deep-pocketed tech investors. And so I, I tend to, unless there's a place where we could do early capital in a key moment, I tend to assume that Chomik and his set of investors are going to to deliver on that. I think I think for anybody who's very focused on tech, they're a fantastic showcase for new tech talent definitely for-profit tech for-profit tech yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. what do you think the characteristics are of a strong political entrepreneur whether it's nonprofit or for-profit someone who wants to create a new entity in this space what do you look for well definitely want them to have you know a compelling idea that has diagnosed and is delivering on a on a key gap I think you'd need to have outsized outsized humility, if that's if that's a possible term. I love that phrase. Um, <laughs> I'm going to adopt that one. <laughs> I want more people in my life with outsized humility, for sure. Um, I mean, and I'm thinking of some of the entrepreneurs in our portfolio that exhibit this. You have to be ambitious, obviously, to aspire to build something that somebody's never built before and deliver on it. But you need to really know what you don't know and be very open to partnering with others, learning and growing when you're proven wrong. I mean, these are true of of entrepreneurs in general, but, you know, we're in a moment of extraordinary change in terms of the, the new American majority and demographic shifts and really, really local solutions tend to resonate enormously with voters. And you really have to be aware that there are lots of things that you don't know. And then the other thing I would say is you have to have really deep integrity. I mean, I felt that way, you know, the the, the mobilized entrepreneurs, you know, had offers from uh, other companies that were that would work with both sides, you know, and obviously there are business downsides to, to going that route, but you have to be really thinking about what's your North Star in terms of what you want to deliver. What do you see as your role or the role of Propel with an investee after you've given them money? We recently did a, a review of our portfolio. We had an anonymous survey of our investees, all, all on the for-profit side, you know, nearly 90% of them said that we were additional. So we were either the first investor in or an investor in when they couldn't raise capital otherwise. Even though we're, we don't have the largest team, um, I think we really, we really do deliver. So in some instances, we have really help them raise uh, a lot of additional capital, made introductions to others and and made that possible. In a lot of instances, we are, especially for new entrepreneurs, and this would be across the democracy portfolio, they're brand new at doing something like this. Somebody like Lala was, you know, was an attorney when I first met her doing this as a volunteer or some of our other partners, you know, were human rights lawyers or brand specialists or things like that. And so just being a sounding board, I would say with 
almost everybody in our portfolio, they call, I would say we're probably the first one they call if there's bad news or something tricky. We help them think it through. And then the other thing that I did starting, you know, in 2016 was just say yes to any donor organizing or donor convening just to get a sense of the lay of the land and also to promote our partners and make introductions for them. And one thing is that many of those rooms were almost completely white in terms of political investors. That is something that I've spent, I think, a lot of time on is just kind of lifting up the the importance of investing in political entrepreneurs that are people of color and are connected to the communities that we're hoping they'll reach and elevated that issue as much as possible. Some of the really big progressive donors last, you know, this last election cycle were out of LinkedIn and Microsoft and some of the, you know, some very large pots of money. And I'm not sure whether those will continue or not. Did you work with them at all? And how do you think they did? One thing I think has just been incredible is a level of coordination and information sharing and openness that happened among the political donor base. I worked alongside Reed Hoffman's team. They played a really, really key role in bringing people together. I mean, that's part of what what you can do as a, a large investor and funder in this space. And they really took that role very seriously. And I think made sure we were all on the same page at some very, very key moments, because it was certainly a bumpy ride. I think that was a real, really out, valuable component of this, this whole process. And I hope they will continue at the same level. I think they have been at the forefront of sounding the alarm about how serious the situation is. And so I don't see them letting up anytime soon. How well does the work you do outside of the democracy area fit with what you do there? All of our new investing is domestically focused and it's on the direct investment venture side. So it is similar in that it's early stage seed pre-seed um, which I think is also where we can have the highest highest leverage on the on the democracy side as well. Though I would say some of what I'm I think was really effective this time is that we helped organizations that were established build out a more robust political arm. I would really encourage other investors to engage in the democracy space because one of the things that I think we were able to do that had really outsized impact was take risks on things early on because we're used to taking risks on things. So we were not waiting for a research controlled experiment that would show that this cost per vote calculation would have delivered XYZ. We doubled down on all the groups that uh, tested strategies in 2017 in Virginia and then went to Georgia in 2018 and worked with Stacey in, during her primary and tripled the Latinx vote and and built a whole cadre of organizers uh, that worked in rural Georgia and and experimented with lots of different kinds of uh, creative ways to reach people. And we experimented with, you know, people who were coming together to try to organize volunteers. Like we provided early funding to Swing Left 
you wanted to harness this amazing energy, but you didn't know exactly how that was going to look. And so I think that tolerance for risk, the ability to move very, very quickly, those things are things we just need more of in the democracy space. And that applies across our portfolio. And I would encourage, you know, other donors and investors to think of that because they have the capacity to do that in ways that more institutional investors don't. I've talked to a lot of funders in the sort of progressive and democracy building space now. With the stakes as high as they are, I wonder if we aren't massively underfunding this. That's a hard thing to estimate. The support for these organizations, the support for just all kinds of civic ventures, things that counteract the disinformation, the lying, the misinformation, ranging all the way to political tech or to just local groups trying to organize people like you're talking about, fixes to the electoral process, local media, the you know, you know the space. It's we're not as robust as we should be as a country. We're far from it. it. A lot of things are at risk. There's a real crisis. How do we get to where we need to be? I have a sense you're doing your part, but like, how do we, how do we get there? Yeah. I mean, plus one, I think we are massively underfunding it. And I think you just read off a pretty good list of all the different ways people could come into this. You could come in from a local media standpoint. You could come in from a tech standpoint, you could come in from a donor organizing standpoint, you could come in from a civic engagement standpoint. Absolutely, it's massively underfunded. Anyone who's giving money away should be thinking about how they're using their philanthropic funding. I think you should think about how your investment portfolio works against democracy ideals. I mean, I think there are many different levers. That is part of what we funded with Way to Win and Movement Voter Project and Swing Left and Sister District was just what are the ways that more people more efficiently can give, uh, you know, small donors and, and big donors. I do think people realize now if you're if you care about conservation, you care about libraries, you care about early childhood education, you should be funding democracy. I mean, there's just there's just no question that that's not you know critical. Well, I mean, one of the really complicating factors right now is with at least a good portion of one party not supporting democracy or being a threat to democracy. It makes the partisan bet so gigantic right now. The consequences of Republicans in power are not just, you know, political changes on policy. They run to the risk to the democracy itself, it feels like. How does that affect how you think about investments when some of the investments, like a sister district, they may not be technically partisan? Yeah, they're actually more partisan than some of our other investments because they're set because of their legal structure. But I mean, I think it's so important if, you know, all the people who are giving tax advantage, you know, to C3 donations, um, that is great and important. And this is a good year to do that. But you have to be thinking about your C4, your PAC, your political contributions um, as well, and doing it, you know, on a, on a comparable scale. There's also just an incredibly important accountability function against the social media platforms. The kind of disinformation that is allowed to spread there and has been allowed to spread 
you know, it's unconscionable. And I, I mean, that's, that's another reason why I feel so strongly about color of changes role. You know, they're at the forefront of hold and have been for years of holding the, uh, the social media platforms accountable. And we, we can see what happens when Trump is no longer on Twitter. You know, it just, it just really takes, I mean, he's obviously migrated and other people have migrated to other platforms, but if that had been disabled earlier, you know, or if there had been different kind of monitoring of Facebook, I think we would have been in a different situation. What keeps you in this game? I'm so hopeful. <laughs> I mean, I'm really an optimist. I'm also very patriotic. <laughs> Heather McGee, who's on the board of Color of Change with me and has a new very profound book out on race in America, says, because America is the world's boldest experiment in democracy, a nation of ancestral strangers with ties to every community on the globe, all met here with the audacious promise that we could become one people. And I'm a sucker for that. I think that really is the promise of this country. And we have so many more people on our side. You know, we need the tools and the technology and and the, the stories and everything to get people engaged and participating. It's much harder for us to do it than it is for, um, you know, those on the other side that have just more of a monolith. But we have the new American majority coming. And if we can invest in people um, and invest in communities, then I really think we can, I think we can do it. It would be the promise that we've always hoped for in this country, but haven't yet delivered on. Depending on which eye you look out of, there's so much diversity and love and togetherness on one side. And on the other side, there's so much risk and hate and not that everyone's right on either side, you know, mm-hmm. but it is, mm-hmm. it is a struggle right now. Mm-hmm. It is. But don't you want to be on the, <laughs> the, the, side, of the, <laughs> the side of love <laughs> and joy and uh, everybody's got their own point of view. One thing that I just thinking of is that uh, around the, the narrative piece is that there has been so much more joy, I think, in a lot of the the messaging and communications. And I think that's partly because we trusted different kinds of messengers than we did in the past. And I was, you know, looking through some of the stats of how many people registered to vote after the movement for Black Lives, um, you know, uprisings. Voto Latino was saying, we're just having people coming out of the woodwork to vote. And you know, that there were immobilized 26 million people in 50 states. There are tragedies and there will be more tragedies, but there's also a lot that makes me feel really hopeful. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? No, I think it was only going to be about what's making me feel joyful. And I think just these amazing, amazing new generation of leaders makes me feel optimistic. Yeah, me too. Fresh eyes are really helpful in a time like this, I think. Absolutely. Well, it's really been an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, thanks so much. I'm glad that you're having these conversations. I've really enjoyed listening to some of the other ones and look forward to hearing future ones as well. Well, thank you for taking the time. That was Sarah Williams in Propel Capital. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman 
with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.